Well, good morning. Uh, turn, please, to Matthew chapter 13. It is an honor and privilege to bring you the word this morning. It's also always very intimidating. But thankfully, I know that you are not ultimately here to listen to what I have to say. You are here to worship our good and gracious King and to hear from his perfect word. Well, the Lord has laid it on my heart to bring you a text that I've been thinking about for some time. As you probably know by now, I'm not very good at outlines. But in order to stay on track and keep things somewhat organized, I have a brief outline today. These are not really points, just a general overview of what I intend to cover. So we're looking this morning first at the uh, parable of the wheat and the tares, or wheat and the weeds. And I'll begin with the exegesis, and that just answers the question, what does the text say? And I'll do my best to try and explain it and define a few terms along the way. <clears throat> then I want to talk briefly about how this text can help inform our ecclesiology. And that simply just has to do with the doctrine of the church. After that, I'll address some eschatology, and that is the doctrine of last things, or end times, if you will. And finally, a word of encouragement. So first, let's open God's word together. Please follow along as I read from Matthew 13, beginning verse 24. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest, and at harvest time I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. Skip down to verse 36. Then he left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. Well, as I said, the Lord had laid this passage on my heart uh, a while ago, and I initially thought that the parable was really pretty simple. Of course, one reason why I thought that was because Jesus himself reveals the meaning of the parable down in verses 36 to 43, after his disciples ask him to explain it. Still, though, it's easy to miss the main point of a parable, and even easier to make the mistake of majoring on some minor detail and pressing that detail beyond Christ's intended lesson. As I studied a little more deeply, I realized that 
this was going to be more difficult and technical than I anticipated, so I apologize for that. This is what you get, I guess, for not going to the Ocean City Bible Conference. <laughs> well, it wasn't until I was already knee-deep in preparing the sermon that I came across this from Gordon Clark, one of my favorite theologians. Clark said, analogies have their difficulties. Christ's parables are the hardest parts of the gospel to understand. So with that humbling thought in mind, let's ask the Lord to help us and to protect you from any errors that I may have made in preparing this. Father, I acknowledge my weakness, both in understanding and in communicating. And I acknowledge our inability to do anything good, even to understand your word apart from the Holy Spirit. So Lord, please enlighten us and guide us and strengthen me to proclaim your word accurately this morning. And let your truth shine through despite my weaknesses in Jesus' name. Amen. In Mark 4.30, in the New American Standard, Jesus says, How shall we picture the kingdom of God, or by what parable shall we present it? So a parable is a picture, and it is intended to communicate a spiritual truth greater than its representative parts. So let's look at some of those parts, but try and not lose sight of the bigger picture. Beginning in verse 24. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. Let's take a look at that phrase, the kingdom of heaven, for a moment. It's worth noting that this phrase is only found in the book of Matthew. But the doctrine of the kingdom is, of course, not confined here. There is an Old Testament theme of the kingdom that Matthew's gospel is developing. And elsewhere in the New Testament, it is termed the kingdom of God or kingdom of Christ. I'm going to pretty much assert what I don't have time to prove, uh, but I think it's safe to say that these terms, kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God, kingdom of Christ, are all referring to the same thing. One bit of support for that comes from chapter 19, verses 23 to 24. Jesus said to his disciples, truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. So obviously in that context, Jesus is using those terms interchangeably. Even in the passage we're looking at today, notice that down in verse 41, the kingdom is said to be that of the Son of Man. Well, if the Son of Man is Christ, and his kingdom is the one spoken of here, then not only is this another of Christ's claims to divinity, but it means that the kingdom of Christ and the kingdom of heaven are equivalents. So we should understand the kingdom here within its broader use throughout the New Testament, even though Matthew was the only one to use that specific phrase. Verse 25. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. When we look beginning down at verse 36 at Jesus' explanation, we will find that he doesn't bother to tell us who these sleeping men represent. Many fine commentators and authors have nevertheless gone beyond Jesus' explanation and insist that these men are God's appointed watchmen over the church, and they are asleep at the wheel. The enemy was able to come in and sow weeds among the wheat simply because the watchmen were asleep, thereby failing to protect their flock from wolves. We will come back to this, but I actually don't think that is a proper interpretation. 
and is in fact an example of what I said earlier about pressing a detail of a parable beyond its purpose within the illustration. As for why Jesus chose to use wheat as opposed to some other grain or crop, I like Benjamin Keach's comments. He says, happy is that land that has in it abundance of choice wheat. Wheat will abide and live in the sharpest winter when some other grain will not. So true believers do abide and live in the times of sharpest trials, persecutions, tribulations, and temptations. So wheat may have been chosen because of its resilience compared to other crops. Verse 26. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. Notice how the weeds, or tares in other translations, were indistinguishable from the wheat until they matured and bore grain. The Greek word here translated from the weed is actually referring to the darnel, which is a specific weed that Jesus probably chose because it resembles wheat and because it could actually be poisonous. He seems to want to make the point that these weeds might even look outwardly good and seemingly upright. He didn't choose to use thorns or thistles, which would indicate a more obvious enemy of Christ. Charles Spurgeon notes that thorns and thistles, they, that is the workers, can uproot, but the darnel is another matter. Magistrates and churches may remove the openly wicked from their society, but the outwardly good who are inwardly worthless, they must leave, for the judging of hearts is beyond their sphere. So Spurgeon makes the important point that neither churches nor civil governments are appointed to nor expected to uproot these weeds from society. As for the rest of the passage, thankfully God does not leave us to our own speculations about what these things represent. Jump down to verse 37. We find that the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. We are familiar with the designation son of man. We know that Jesus is referring to himself by this title. But the significance of the title probably wasn't as clear to those to whom Jesus was speaking. Literally, we could say it is son of Adam. And we know from later revelation that Jesus is the last Adam, the perfect man who did what Adam failed to do. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. 1 Corinthians 15, 21 to 22. So it wouldn't be wrong to say that the term son of man is in one sense a reference to the new and better Adam, the federal head of the new covenant. But most scholars point to Daniel 7 for the origin of this title, which Jesus ascribes to himself. Turn there for a moment. Uh, Daniel chapter 7, beginning at verse 13. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So you see the messianic nature of the Son of Man in this passage, and you also see the kingdom language. His kingdom, in contrast to every other kingdom, shall never be destroyed, and his dominion will not pass away. This is Isaiah 53's suffering servant coming in glory. But back to Matthew 13. 
Now, verses 38 and 39, Jesus gives us in plain language the meaning of the rest of the key words used in this parable. Verse 38, the field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Now, it is vital, I think, to rightly understanding this parable that we remember Jesus said, the field is the world. Perhaps with some exaggeration, Richard Trench said that over these few words, that is, the field is the world, over these few words, simple as they may seem, there has perhaps been more contention than over any other single phrase in the scripture. I don't know if that's the most contentious phrase in scripture, but it shows that apparently many scholars had more trouble with Jesus' explanation than with the parable itself. I have a theory about why that might be, but I'll save that for later. Before I get into this portion of Jesus' explanation, I want to give you just two quotes to set up what I think is at the root of the contention that Trench is referring to. Now, I love both of these men. I'm about to quote. I'm not bashing them, but they are fallible like the rest of us. Listen to J.C. Ryle. He says, The visible church is set before us as a mixed body. It is a vast field in which wheat and weeds grow side by side. We must expect to find believers and unbelievers, converted and unconverted, the sons of the kingdom and sons of the evil one, all mingled together in every congregation of baptized people. Well, from that, it certainly sounds like Ryle has made up his mind that the field is not actually the world, but the church, or at least the visible church. James Montgomery Boyce argues that the world here is not speaking exclusively of the world in contrast to the church. He says, what is the point of the devil's planting children in the world in a general way if all it means is that the devil's children and God's children live side by side? At best, that is self-evident. Besides that, if the field is the world apart from the church, it would be more correct to say that the devil's children are in the world already and that it is Jesus rather than Satan who plants his seed among the seed that is already growing. It would be Jesus who does the new thing, not Satan. Well, Boyce is saying that the fact that the devil's children and God's children live side by side in the world is self-evident. So how can that be what Jesus is talking about? How can the field really be the world, in other words? Well, Boyce is right, I think, that it's certainly self-evident to us that the devil's children and God's children live side by side. But I think what he may be overlooking is that Jesus is teaching that the kingdom of heaven has come, but we ought not to think that that's the end of the story. I don't think it was so self-evident to his listeners. You see, the kingdom comes in two stages. That is, it is already here, but it is not yet fully consummated. And so the weeds aren't going anywhere. I think that such teaching was new and mysterious and was not clearly understood in Jesus' day. Some may have been wondering, if this is the long-awaited Messiah and he is announcing the arrival of the kingdom, why are we not reigning with him on earth? Confusion about the nature of the kingdom is, I think, the very reason why two chapters earlier, John the Baptist couldn't make sense of the situation he was in. Remember, he asked the disciples to find out, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? It's as if John was saying, wait a minute, the kingdom of heaven is here. I've been proclaiming that 
Jesus is proclaiming that. But I'm in prison about to get my head cut off. This is not the kingdom of heaven I was expecting. You see, Jesus is bringing to light, and I think this is the main point of the parable, the nature of the kingdom, that it is arrived in one sense, yet not fully consummated. In my opinion, it's not worth getting hung up on the chronology in the illustration of Jesus planting the seed first and then the devil later planting weeds, as Boyce points out, as being contrary to how Christ saves sinners out of the world. Those details about when the devil sowed weeds in relation to Christ's sowing are not the point of the parable. This is not a discourse on the order of salvation. It is a parable about the kingdom of heaven. Well, I said earlier that a parable presents us with a picture, but a picture is not an exact representation. It's an illustration. And any illustration or comparison can fail if it is pressed beyond its intended lesson. One example, just to hammer that point home. Look over at the parable of the pearl of great price in verse 45. It says again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought, and bought it. Well, I guess then salvation is by works, because after all, the merchant here possesses merchandise or some store of value, and he sells it that he might purchase the pearl of great price. No, obviously not, uh, but that's what happens when you press the details beyond the point of the parable. Jesus is simply describing the great value of the kingdom compared to everything else in the world. So I think Boyce's concern is overstated. If Jesus tells us that the field is the world, not the church, then I think we would be wise to allow the God-man to define his own terms. Well, I said earlier that this passage can give us some insight into ecclesiology or the doctrine of the church. Ecclesiology comes from the Greek word ecclesia, which is translated church in the New Testament. Now you might be saying, Nick, you're the one reading things into the passage. You just got through saying that the field is the world, not the church. The passage doesn't even use the word church. So how can it have anything to do with ecclesiology? Well, the passage does tell us about the kingdom and who are members of the kingdom and who aren't. I think we can gather that the kingdom is made up of God's elect, and such are the very ones who make up the church of God. According to John chapter 3, you remember, it is only those who are born again who can enter the kingdom of heaven. Let me develop that a little bit and why it matters. See, when we think about the quotations that I read by Ryle and Boyce, guys much smarter than I am, both of those fine men tried to make the case, or at least assumed, that the field was really the church, or at least the visible church, despite Jesus' clear statement that the field is the world. Ryle used the parable to argue that the congregation is always a mixture of believers and unbelievers, and such is just the nature of the church. Now, I should say, of course, I do believe that in probably most church gatherings, there are likely some unbelievers present. There may be some here today. However, I make a distinction between the word gathering, as I've just used it, and the word church, because I think that is what the Bible does, and I think that is what the new covenant requires. How does the Bible define the word church or ecclesia? According to scripture, the church is the called out ones, 1 Corinthians 1, 23 to 24, the elect of God, Titus 1, 1, the sheep standing on the right, Matthew 23, 25, 23, the bride of Christ, 
Revelation 19.7. The blood-bought members of Christ's eternal kingdom, 2 Peter 1.11. 1 Corinthians 1.23 and 24 in the New American Standard reads, but to those who are the called. These are specific people, not simply all who hear the outward call of the gospel, and certainly not all who sit in a particular building on Sunday, but those who are chosen of God. So the biblical concept of the church is not, therefore, simply the New Testament equivalent of the Old Testament assembly in the wilderness. That gathering did contain a mixture of believers and unbelievers, despite them all being members of a temporary covenant. This is what I'm getting at. There may be unbelievers in this building right now, but there are no unbelievers in the church, as the Bible uses the word. It is one of the distinguishing characteristics of the new covenant in contrast to the old, that the members of the new covenant, the true right of Christ, have all been redeemed. The local gathering or the visible church is an imperfect picture of that. The kingdom of heaven is here, but is not yet consummated. But even though the building may contain both wheat and weeds, the new covenant does not. It is made up exclusively of wheat. The only way a weed can enter the kingdom of heaven is by the sovereign hand of God turning that weed into wheat, and in which case it is no longer a weed. But until that point, it is not a member of the church in the biblical sense of the word, and therefore remains outside of the covenant. Jeremiah 31 bears this out, and the author of Hebrews applies the promise in Jeremiah to the New Testament church. Hebrews 8 verse 9 says this, this covenant is not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. But in contrast, this is how the new covenant is different. Verse 10, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. As Pastor Mike Chang pointed out a few weeks ago in his sermon on baptism, this is a fundamental distinction of Baptist covenant theology versus paedo-Baptist covenant theology, or what Presbyterians hold to. You can inform your Presbyterian friends that Jesus said the field here is the world, not the church. And so Jesus is not teaching that the kingdom of heaven is made up of both believers and unbelievers, and so we should just baptize the infant children of believers since we don't really know who the elect will turn out to be anyway. No, the point of the parable is that believers and unbelievers coexist in the world until the harvest, which comes at the end of the age. You see, I think... And I can't prove this, but I think the reason why so many commentators insist upon the mixed nature of the church based on this passage is because of a theological commitment they've already made to the Pado-Baptist view of the church as a mixed community. I only quoted Ryle and Boyce as examples, but both of them happen to be Pado-Baptists. So maybe, just maybe, if certain men didn't already possess an allegiance to Pado-Baptist theology, Maybe they wouldn't feel compelled to redefine the field here differently than how Jesus defines it. 
if there's a lesson here for us, I would say that we ought to be careful not to impose our own preconceived theological commitments upon the text of Scripture, but rather let the Scriptures themselves correct our theology. You see, this flawed understanding of the church as made up of both wheat and weeds and a supposed mixed membership of the new covenant is at the root of the theology that justifies the baptism of infants. Because one can simply say, look, circumcision was performed on infants in the old covenant with no guarantee that they would all be saved. And so we administer the sign of baptism to infants knowing that not all of them will be saved either. Some may turn out simply to be tares among the wheat. No big deal. Jesus said we would have tares among the wheat. But we have already seen that the textual problem with this is that the field is the world. And the broader theological problem with that view is that according to Hebrews 8, in contrast to the Old Covenant, there are no unregenerated members in the New Covenant. Everyone who is a member of this covenant is there by virtue of God's elective decree in eternity past. And it results in a conversion that cannot be undone. You cannot be a member of the new covenant and then fall out of it because there are no conditions that you must meet to remain in it. Why? Because again, unlike the covenant made with Moses, which they broke, in this covenant, Christ, the Son of Man, met all the conditions in our place. You see how there is a sharp contrast between the old covenant which was a mixture of believers and unbelievers in the wilderness, for example, and the new covenant, which is made up exclusively of believers. And so in light of this crucial difference, why would you knowingly administer the sign of the new covenant to those like infants who have no profession of faith in Christ Jesus? This is an important point in understanding why we are Baptists and why Baptists are right. Fred Malone put it this way. He said there's a difference between being in the new covenant and in the church body by profession. The kingdom parables do not show a mixture of believers and unbelievers in the kingdom of God. Rather, they show that all the sons of the kingdom are good soil and regenerate. There are members of the new covenant. So the members of the covenant are members of the kingdom. Luke 22:29 makes this connection quite nicely because it could literally be translated and I covenant unto you, as my Father covenanted, covenanted unto me, a kingdom. One more final point related to ecclesiology, then we'll move on. Earlier I said that I do not agree with those who insist on heaping guilt upon the master's sleeping servants for allowing the weeds to take root. I say this, first of all, because Jesus does not, at any point in the parable, nor in his explanation, condemn or rebuke the master's sleeping servants. You would think that if these represented elders of local churches who are derelict of duty, you would think that Christ would take the opportunity to include a rebuke for these lazy servants, but he doesn't. But the other reason why I think these do not represent elders is because of what I had just been saying about the field being the world, not the church. God's watchmen or under shepherds or elders are not given dominion or jurisdiction over all the affairs of pagan society. They ought to preach the gospel so that all may hear, and they ought to call unbelievers to repentance as the Lord grants them opportunity. But they have no power to prevent evil from spreading throughout the world. 
So if the field is the world, as Jesus says, how can God's watchmen be blamed for the spread of evil throughout it? 2 Corinthians 4.4 says that Satan is the god of this world, and he is the one who plants the weeds in the parable. Jesus even prays in John 17.9, I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me. The world is not ultimately his concern. There is a distinct and very important role given to pastors to guard the flock of God, but they cannot be expected to keep weeds from growing throughout a field cultivated by the evil one. And this is why the sharp criticism towards slumbering pastors based on this text is, in my opinion, unwarranted. You want to rebuke undiscerning and reckless pastors? That's good, but you're going to have to do it from one of the epistles. Well, hopefully that helps you understand at least some of the important differences between the Old and New Covenant and how this passage does not lend any support to the practice of infant baptism. Now, I think the central theme of the parables of Matthew 13 is eschatology, specifically the two-stage nature of the kingdom. In chapter 10 of Matthew's Gospel, Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This phrase seems to speak to the presentness or nearness of the kingdom in Christ's day. Yet, in chapter 8, verse 11, Jesus says, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Well, surely, here we see some eschatological or future aspect to the kingdom because Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are already dead at this point, and yet they're said to be enjoined with those who presently have the faith of Abraham, both Jew and Gentile. The kingdom of heaven is already here, but not yet consummated. So if you are in Christ, you are already a citizen of heaven. But you are not yet fully enjoying all of which that citizenship entails. So in the meantime, it is why we are to set our minds on things above, not things on the earth, for this world is passing away. Philippians three nineteen to 21. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. This transformation from lowly to glorious bodies is a reference to the resurrection, the event which will mark the beginning of the age to come. Look at verses 40 to 42. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Well, if you're paying attention, you might think that verse 41 throws a monkey wrench in what I said about Christ's kingdom being only made up of believers, because it says, the angels will gather them out of his kingdom. I'll address that shortly. But in this parable, we learn a few things that help us think more clearly about the broad scope of God's redemptive plan. First, notice that in verse 40, he says, so it will be at the end of the age, the end of the age. You will find that here and in other places in the New Testament, these are the only two ages spoken of, this age and the age to come. For example, earlier in Matthew 12, 32, Jesus seems to reduce 
all of time into two ages when he says that those who blaspheme the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven either in this age or in the age to come. Similarly, Luke 18.30, who will not receive many times as much at this time or in this age and in the age to come, eternal life. Mark 10.30, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time and in the age to come, eternal life. So the age to come is the eternal state. There is no age after the eternal state. And it would seem that no age can be wedged in between this age and the eternal state. This should simplify our view of the end times. A few weeks ago, when Pastor Keith preached on Haggai, he said, the, book, the point of the book of Revelation is not to construct exact timetables, but that Jesus wins. And he is quite right about that. We would do well to start with what we know. And I think what we know from this parable is that there is this age, the age that we are living in, the same age that the disciples were living in, and the age to come. So we have two groups of people, the wheat and the weeds, elsewhere the wheat and the chaff, or the sheep and the goats, and we have two ages, this age and the age to come. Do not overlook these simple but crucial eschatological insights when you think about God's immutable plan for the future. This text should help us even in how we understand Revelation 20 because it gives us some parameters for what the thousand years can or cannot be referring to. It doesn't seem to me that the thousand years can be inserted between these two ages, which encompass all of time, nor can the thousand years be another age that follows the singular age to come. So the next time you read Revelation 20, or rather get into an argument about it, remember what Jesus teaches us in this parable. The wheat and the weeds mature together, and neither is overtaken by the other. Remember, the master's men are not rebuked for failing to stop the weeds from spreading. And when they ask if they should uproot them in verse 28, what does the owner of the field, that's Jesus, the son of man, according to verse 37, what does he say? He says, no, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Verse 30, let both grow together until the harvest. You see that? Both the wheat and the weeds will grow and mature together in the field, which is the world. While wickedness increases, so does the expansion of Christ's kingdom. This is important. Because saints, we will continue to be surrounded by weeds and their influence in this age. Yet the weeds will never ultimately choke out the wheat. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The weeds, as pernicious and as poisonous as they can be, will not overtake the wheat. The world, despite its every effort, despite its perpetual attack on the truth, will not eradicate the church. Because the church, the ecclesia, is not this or any other building. Remember what Jesus said in John 6.39. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up at the last day. What is the it in this passage? It is the church, those who are the called. It is the elect from every tribe, tongue, and nation, and it is in an unbreakable covenant with the king of kings. On the other hand, 
and this is just as important, while the wheat itself will be preserved, it will not swallow up nor have dominion over the weeds. Jesus says, let both grow together until the harvest. When is the harvest? Go back to verse 39. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels, not men. So the weeds cannot choke out the wheat, but neither are the weeds subsumed by the growth of the church. The weeds, the sons of the evil one, verse 38, unbelievers, will be with us in the world until the church grows exponentially and Christianizes all of society? No, the weeds will be with us in the world until the end of the age, at which time Christ and his angels gathered them up for destruction. So notice, just from this parable, Jesus has effectively eliminated two eschatological extremes. Jesus' words provide us with a balanced perspective about the nature and growth of the kingdom of God. Do not be under the delusion, some call it optimism, I call it a delusion, that the church will overtake the world. The church will experience no lasting peace until the Prince of Peace returns, at which time he will usher in the end of the age. At the same time, be encouraged that no matter what satanic lunacy is rampant in the field, and no matter what seeming apostasy is unfolding in our midst, the weeds will not choke out the wheat, no matter how hard they try. This is why apostasy, by the way, is only apostasy from our perspective, not God's perspective. Those within the covenant of grace cannot be extracted from it. The elect do not become a non-elect. Apostasy, then, is merely that these weeds appeared from our vantage point to be in the kingdom because they sat in our midst and looked and behaved like wheat for a time. But of God's children, by contrast, Jesus says in John 10, 28 and 29, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. If you were at Gateway Church on the Wednesday that our brother Eric Kim preached, he preached from Matthew 19, where you find verses like, What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. The context is marriage, but as Eric pointed out, this is picturing something much greater. The marriage of the lamb to his bride. The bond between Christ and his bride, which was covenanted before time began, 2 Timothy 1.9, cannot be broken. Now that helps us to understand verse 41 a little better. I said I'd come back to that. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers. These are merely those who appeared to be in his kingdom, but were not really members of the eternal covenant. In other words, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us, First John 2.19. See that? So apostates leave the gathering or the building, but they never leave the covenant because they were never in the covenant. Finally, look at verse 43. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. 
He who has ears, let him hear. This is actually a reference to Daniel 12.3. Please turn back to Daniel, if you will, because the quotation in Matthew implies something, but doesn't say it explicitly the way Daniel does. Daniel 12, beginning of verse 1. But at that time, your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book, and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Notice, only two groups of people and only two ages. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. A few weeks ago, my family rented a house with two of my cousins and their families uh, on the Jersey Shore. They are here with us this morning. When we returned home, I was telling Brother Scott Smith about what a wonderful time we had. On the Sunday morning we were there, we were able to gather together, sing hymns, listen to my brother John preach by live stream from their church just before he made his way down to join us. We ministered to one another on the beach. We had late night theological discussions and the fellowship was really beautiful and uh, impacted me in a big way. As we were getting ready to leave at the end of the trip, it was really difficult for me and kind of depressing because what was this beautiful time of fellowship? This small, imperfect glimpse of the kingdom was over. And when I returned home, I was right away faced with some more discouraging stuff that I didn't have to think about while we were away. And so I was telling Scott this and how the only downside to the trip was, at least for me, was that it had to come to an end. And Scott very insightfully said, you know, a day is coming when that fellowship will never end. That might not seem very profound to you, but it turned my sadness into joy. Because think of the most wonderful time of fellowship you ever had with the saints, fellow subjects of the kingdom, fellow members of the eternal and unbreakable covenant. Those times of fellowship always have to come to an end. We have to get back to work or school or enduring life in general amidst the weeds. But that will not always be the case. A time of perfect fellowship is coming and it will never end. If that doesn't excite you, perhaps you need a renewed sense of the kingdom of heaven, much like I did. Verse 43, the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Daniel 12, 3, like the stars forever and ever. Well, to conclude, the kingdom of heaven comes in two stages. It came during Christ's earthly ministry in the first of only two ages that Jesus speaks of. The weeds will persist for a time, but not forever. This age of sin, sickness, and death will come to an end, and the kingdom of heaven will be brought to its full consummation. And there we will have perfect fellowship with the king himself forever and ever. That's what I believe is the point of this parable. 
It's not to teach us that it's okay to baptize babies or that the new covenant somehow has unbelievers in it or that we ought to look with skepticism at everyone in the church and assume that many of them are weeds. That's what I used to think. Nor is this parable a condemnation of elders for failing to quench every wicked act of the weeds of the field. This is a passage about the kingdom of heaven. And if you are a member of that kingdom, it ought to bring you joy and encouragement. If John the Baptist were were there to hear it, I think it would have brought him joy and encouragement. Yes, along with John, Jesus announced the arrival of the kingdom, but Jesus tells us here that the story isn't over. We have to endure the field until the consummation. But no matter what, God will guard and protect the wheat despite the harshest winter and fiercest drought. It's not our strength or fortitude, but it is Jesus Christ and his love for his bride that sustains us. He will not fail to bring her safely home. Finally, I, I said earlier that the parable is not a discourse on the order of salvation. If today marked the end of the age, if Christ came today for the harvest, would you be bundled and thrown into the fire? Or would you be counted among the righteous who will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father? Those are the only two options. And there is only one way to be counted among the righteous, and that is to receive Christ's righteousness as a free gift by faith. Bring nothing of your works. Weeds can hardly produce an acceptable sacrifice. Simply go to Jesus as a helpless sinner with nothing to offer and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Father, we ought to be counted among the weeds gathered and thrown into the fire. And yet you have mercifully made us wheat instead by grace alone. Lord, we look forward to the day when we will be forever present with you in your glorious kingdom where you reign forever and ever. Please keep us and sustain us until that glorious day. And let us not be discouraged by the weeds, but help us to press on with an eye toward your heavenly kingdom, which never passes away. In Jesus' name, amen.